Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight. The seeds of today's episode were planted last fall when I was walking around the Tenderloin with a police officer for a column about City Hall looking the other way at rampant open-air drug dealing. We came across a man who was passed out on a Larkin Street sidewalk with needles strewn around him. He was filthy and his arms were puffed up like balloons, a telltale sign of heroin addiction. The police officer rousted him and he told us his name was Jeffrey Choate, that he was 33 years old and that he was homeless and addicted to heroin and meth. His story and photos appeared in the Chronicle and his mother, who lives in the East Bay, saw them. They'd become somewhat estranged over the years and she didn't know how bad life had gotten for her son. Susan Choate Bry agreed to share her family's story and explain how her son wound up addicted to drugs and homeless in the Tenderloin. She said she's tired of hiding in shame and wants to speak out about the nation's inability to deal with its opioid epidemic. Coming up, she and Jeffrey's stepdad, Steve Bry, tell their story. And Jeffrey speaks too, from jail. I'll be right back. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Susan Choate Bry and Steve Bry, the parents of Jeffrey Choate, a homeless man addicted to heroin and meth who's now behind bars. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming to the Chronicle today to talk to me. Thank you for having sure. us. So we first met um, an unlikely way back in the fall. I wrote a column about open-air drug dealing in the Tenderloin and happened to include photographs and quotes from your son, who I found um, passed out on a sidewalk in the Tenderloin with needles around him. And um, you saw the column. So tell me, um, what was your reaction when you first saw the Chronicle story with Jeffrey in it? Well, I felt mixed emotions. Um, first... Um, I, that was a picture I had in my head for a few years, knowing he was out on the streets. Um, but I really didn't want to see it in person, um, if I'm to be honest. Um, but seeing it, um, and knowing at that point he was in jail, uh, he had been picked up a couple of weeks after your, your, um, you saw him, um, so on the other hand, I, I, I felt a little relief that he was in jail. At least we knew where he was. Yeah. And how about you, Steve? Yeah, it was like a good news, bad news deal. When we first saw him, we, I guess one of the first things was that, uh, was that really him? Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, probably, was it six, eight, maybe a year, that we didn't know where he was. We had an idea he was in the city somewhere, but we had no, oh, no idea where he was at the time. Of course, that confirmed it right there but in a, in a lousy kind of way. But then we knew that he was still around, still alive. And we, you know, and, uh, and then after that article, uh, we were able to, uh, get to, uh, talk, get to the officer. I'm sure Susie will share with that and, and find out really what was going on. Yeah. So you hadn't spoken to him in close to a year? Correct. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what was the last time, uh, you had talked to him and what did he said? It was the day he got out of jail, and I he called, and I think it was maybe the night before, and I urged him to go to the Salvation Army. Uh, I told him I'd pick him up, and he just said, Mom, 
please let me do this on my own. I'll be okay. I promise I will be okay. Mm-hmm. But you realized he wasn't okay. No, but our communication with him too was, you know, spotty at best. And you can't believe everything he says, but you, we have no control to try to get him help. There, you know, the HIPAA laws, um, uh, even for someone that you know is out there doing themselves harm, we can't do anything. There's no law that, there's nobody that can help us mm-hmm. help him. So I've received emails before from family members of homeless people I've interviewed, um, usually wanting help in trying to locate their relative or sometimes being upset that they were included so publicly in a chronicle um, story. But your email was very different, and you agreed right away to share your family's story and explain how Jeffrey had gotten to you know, near death on the sidewalks of the Tenderloin. Can you talk about why you wanted to go public with your story? Well, I I think for us we um we've been through it for almost 16 years now. Um and I felt I feel different because we're more educated on the substance use disorder and where people call them drug addicts or dr- junkies and uh like worthless people. We knew Jeff wasn't. And because we knew Jeff and I'm sure there's many others out on the street right now that are really worth the help. Um, And I think that was more the attitude was this was a way that maybe we can educate other family members um, to kind of lean in and and try to listen um, when nonsense, uh, you just come up with more nonsense than sense of, of really where how you can help somebody without enabling them, mm-hmm. because that's a fine line. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that you came on board and gave us the vehicle to to share a story and to um, uh, give us the opportunity to learn more about what, what, what's really going on. And mm-hmm. you've kind of opened it up for us. So we would really appreciate that. But the idea with, in telling the story and, and Jeff being involved now with it. it, he feels a purpose that he's he's always sharing stories of the streets and what it's like and all that. Now he feels very good about the opportunity to share what he's experienced along the way. I'm going to take a break here to share some words from Jeffrey himself. I interviewed him in a Redwood City jail. Shortly after we met in the Tenderloin, he'd been arrested for shoplifting from a marshal's in Colma. He gave a false name to police at first and already had a criminal record. He robbed three banks in 2013 to get money to buy drugs. He's been in jail for nearly seven months and has been sentenced to five years in state prison. Here, he explains that he wants to share his story because so many officials talk about the opioid epidemic without actually talking to the people who are addicted to drugs. I don't listen to doctors when they tell me about addiction because unless you've been through it, I don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and I'm not saying that people don't have insight into it. I'm not saying any of that, but like. When you're willing to go rob banks because you're that sick off of opiates, then come talk to me, you know? So, um, like, when you basically have a death wish because it's that bad, then I'll listen, mm-hmm. you know? But you're not going to sit here and tell me, like, you know, how to do this or how, you know, you can't. Do, like, unless, like, unless you've been in my shoes, and that's one thing, like, I think this whole, like, being homeless, being all 
like in jail and prison, everything has done for me is like, it's really allowed me to empathize with people and like put myself in other people's shoes. Like I, it's impossible to get mad at somebody if you can put yourself in their shoes. It is psychologically impossible Mm -hmm. because if you know what they're feeling, you probably would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're humans. And he uh, recently had his 34th birthday. Can you guys describe what he was like as a little kid? Well, yeah, I think it was pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, He liked all the... He loved sports, uh, baseball, soccer. Yeah, he loved the sports, and he, I picture him. He's doing his, his uh, Nintendo and 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 uh, doing his World Wrestling Federation stuff with the re- little wrestlers, and he'd have the Ninja his, Turtles. Ninja Turtles, all Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah. still got a little those around the house. Yeah, and um, and then his friends bring them over, and he'd make tents and you know, do the normal kid stuff. And uh-huh. so it was, it was, I think it was pretty good for him. And Steve, you told me that you're his stepfather, and the first time you met him was when he was four, and you went to the house to pick up Susan yeah, went, for your first date. We, yeah, we first date, and all of a sudden he opens the door, and the first thing he says, "Who are you?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you're uh, you're about to find out." So, um, <laughs> so that's how it all started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Susan, you think that the wisdom tooth surgery he had when he was 17 was a real turning point in this addiction. Can you describe what happened and why you think that was such a crucial moment in his life? Well, you know, we most of us have had our wisdom teeth pulled. And I remember when I had mine pulled, uh, I was just given, uh, I think, Tylenol and codeine. And it was just for a couple of days. And so a friend of ours who knew this dentist quite well um, took his wisdom teeth out and gave him this prescription, and we went to Kaiser and had it filled and didn't even realize, didn't even think that this was a narcotic or, you know, there were 50 tablets. I don't, I don't remember even questioning. You don't question the doctors. You think they know best. And so uh, he got that prescription, and that's when he was still 17. He hadn't turned 18 yet. And uh, when he turned 18, the HIPAA law, it came into effect, and uh, these kids are a lot smarter than I was. Um, not that that's smart, but if they want something, they, I guess, figure it out a way. But uh, Kaiser um, accommodated him quite, uh, quite too well. much. You know? Yeah, you, you lose control. Mm-hmm. He's when I was 18, and of course, when you're 18, teenagers, a lot of times you figure you know the best, and you're, you you can make all the right decisions where – a parent and stuff has been around the block a few times and hope has your best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can help you, you know, make the right decisions or whatever, but it didn't happen this way. We, we had no, we had no chance to help him. He was going to do what he was going to do and, and learn the hard way, I guess, is the way, is the way this one was going. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like you kind of, um, once he turned 18 and moved out on his own and you didn't have quite as much contact with him as you had. And then you described, um, an important uh, conversation over your kitchen table. He was 22 or 23, I think, and he told you, you know, how deep he was into these pills. Right, right. And <clears throat> what had happened was he, he graduated from high school, and, and he had anger issues, and, you know, the personality had changed. But you think, you know, this is a teenager, you know, issues and such. And he um, came home one day and, and just said, Mom, I'm in trouble. And that's when he laid this thing out. And, and for me, I was shocked and thought, how could these, these uh, medications that the doctor gives you, 
um, how could this cause all this, you know? And I had a back injury and, and I had a uh, doctor give me Oxycontin, but like little 10 milligrams. And I was taking them maybe once or twice, maybe three times a day for pain. But that's initially. Um, Kaiser never did any x-rays, nothing. And, and so Jeff and I went down to Kaiser he signed the release, and the lady, I just kept watching these papers come off the copy machine over and over and over. And then when I saw what it was, then the education started. So, And you shared those documents with me. And between <clears throat> when Jeffrey was 18 and about 22, he was prescribed 1,700 pills of opiates. It was when he was 18 mm-hmm. when it all started and within before he was not end of 19 years old they mm-hmm. gave him it was within 11 months mm-hmm. so all that hit him um and and that's just kaiser yeah he told me that he was also able to get pills from friends and even a mm-hmm. friend's mother and they were pretty yeah. easy to get mm-hmm. yeah and I I um, exchanged emails with Kaiser and told them what I was writing, and they wouldn't comment on Jeffrey's specific case because of privacy laws, but um, did say that they've cut their number of opiate prescriptions by 40% um, between, I believe, 2011 and 2017, and are much more aware of what these pills are doing to people. But do you kind of feel like it's too little too late for all of the people who were affected during those years like Jeffrey? Well, that's – yeah, that's – we were, we were uh, confronted with prior to that, you know, and don't know whether that – what they're saying. That might be true what they're saying now. But it just seems like the letter they sent, it was just like a blanket statement that you hear to anybody you gave, they could give to anybody. And, and we really don't feel that that was uh, really appropriate in our case. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel – when I wrote up the uh, my concerns and filed a complaint against Kaiser, I think that was in 2007 or 2008, Eight, something like that, uh-huh. right yeah, yeah. when we found right. out about yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. And um, they said they were within standard of care. Mm-hmm. So then I wrote to the state of California, and they said they were within the standard of care. And I'm th- thinking all these years from that point to today, mm-hmm. what part of standard of care are we talking about? You y'all knew what you were doing. I mean, that's what I felt. So that statement just kind of really didn't hold any water for me. Mm-hmm. And I learned that 5% of people who become addicted to opioid pills will um, then transition to heroin. And of course, that's what happened with Jeffrey. Do you know how old he was when he started doing these harder drugs? Um, I don't know what, what age he was, but in the, in, the, in the scheme of things, I mean, there was a certain point in time where he got a Salvation Army or something. There was – we got out of jail or, or one of these things where all of a sudden he went back out to the streets and that's, that's where he got to the heroin. I was think right? what it was is is his attorney had said and, and that would freshens my mind about that is yeah. she said when, when he got arrested the first time, which he was six years into his addiction before any criminal history came mm-hmm. um, and – um, he was doing pills up to that point. Mm-hmm. Then when he did his um, jail and prison sentence, when he came out, he started shooting up. That's so was, yeah. w- this is where we come back to mm-hmm. another issue mm-hmm. is the rehabilitation and the lack of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me why he was in prison the first time. 
He was uh, trying to get money for his addiction, and he went to, I think, two or three banks. Three, three, and, banks. three banks in four and, days. Yeah, in within four days. In, in different counties. All different different counties, yeah. Yes, and I uh, handed a, a note over um, to give me the money. So basically, Rob Banks. Um, was he armed? With a paper that he gave the lady, and she testified that um, that he was polite, she wasn't afraid, and that he thanked her when he walked away. But did he have a weapon? He did not. Mm-hmm. And how much time did he serve for that? Um Three years, two or three years. Yeah, I mean, they moved around different places. So it was kind of after, you know. After well, we we weren't way attached we, back that, again with him at that right. point too. So we the were communication not was sure. very bad, and we were just trying to keep track or trying to where he was going at what time and everything, and trying to get a visitation. And so we were we were really being uh, progressive and trying to connect with them. But he, he uh, at that time he wasn't. Uh, Maybe maybe was feeling really bad about himself, didn't want to see us or whatever. So it was difficult to connect at that time, but we did the best we could. What was it like to go for so long without regular contact with your son? Well, horrible. It was horrible. You, you, your mind, your mind can wander. You wonder what's going. You hope he's okay, but you really wonder. Your imagination runs in terms of what's happening to him mm-hmm. and where he is and what's he doing. How's it going? And so it's 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 a tough tough deal. So you think serving time in prison actually made things worse because after he got out was when things got went real downhill? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and from what I'm getting letters from people that are in jail or were in jail with Jeff and it seems to be something that happens pretty often that they're the revolving door back in to jail or prison um, seems to be. Yeah, I remember it, when you talk about that, it's, we've talked to a couple of the guards at a couple of different places, mm-hmm. and they remember Jeff, and they said, "Oh, good guy, he'll never be, he'll never be back, he'll never be back." Yeah. Yeah. And when did you become aware that he was homeless and living on the streets? Well, we knew he was homeless because we never heard anything from him, uh, but we, until your article, when your article hit, we, we knew there that he was there. I had called um, because he had been picked up for um, not seeing his parole officer. And so he was picked up for uh, absconding, they call it. And um, I called the police department and wanting to be there when he gets out so I could take him to Salvation Army or take him somewhere. And they couldn't tell me when he was going to get out. Mm. Um, So basically when he got out, uh, nobody was there and he just went back to doing what he was doing. Um, so none of that helps if you don't have somebody to, to be there for you. Yeah. The only way we could find him, if we found out he was incarcerated somewhere and that would be for a couple of days at a time, uh, we went to San Francisco and they said, well, we did try to find out where he's at. We thought he was there, but we wanted to see him. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, well, best thing you do is just file a missing, missing persons report, you know, and that was our way to try to find him. Well, that's, that's, a, yeah. You know, What's it like as a mother to not know where your son is sleeping night to night? Did you ever want to go, like, search him out, or how did you deal with the not knowing? Uh, that's a two-edged sword as well, yes. I wanted to go there, and I knew if I found him that I, I'd i be out in the street with him. I wouldn't be able to leave him there. And 
the way our our relationship was at that time, Jeff was not open as he is today to help himself, help us understand the addiction, um, share with us in ways I think he hasn't shared with us since he was 18 years old. And um, he's 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 the guy that we we really are proud of for the way he is today. Not and I don't know if he had to go through all of this to become that person, but he he's always wanting to help everybody else. And which is the reason why he was arrested uh, this last time because he stole things for pe- from people who got their stuff stolen. So, mm-hmm. so shortly after I met him last fall, he was arrested um, for shoplifting at a Marshalls in Colma. That's why he was in jail in Redwood City, and then now he's at San Quentin, mm-hmm. um, awaiting placement for a five-year prison sentence. Um, and seems like the big sticking point was that he gave a false ID to police officers when they picked him up outside Marshalls. But they, you guys feel that this five-year yeah. sentence is just way too severe for for shoplifting and giving your friend's name, right? It's real excessive. And I, I think what, what led to that five years is, is where he was arrested at, uh, that particular county and all that, and, uh, San Mateo. They, they take priors that he had and throw them into the mix in terms of his, uh, his uh, uh, what he got arrested for in, the, in that particular county. You know, so it's, it's like doing j- double jeopardy. It's, mm-hmm. He's uh, paying twice for something he only did once, you know. So that that was, was part of the equation there, I think. In working on this story, I've learned that San Mateo and San Francisco, despite sharing a border, have completely different outlooks on this and how they, um, basically law enforcement in general, but specifically how they handle um, people who are addicted to drugs. San Francisco um, gives unlimited free needles, um, may become the first city in the country to open a safe injection site but basically just looks the other way when people are blatantly shooting up, uh, even right in front of City Hall. Um, you can see it from the mayor's balcony, and nothing yeah. really happens to yeah. them. Yeah. Um, do you feel that the city was enabling of Jeffrey, or um, what would you do if you were the mayor of San Francisco? Well, mm-hmm. you know, it, again, I think a lot of – there's no clear answer. I mean, uh, Jeff asked me to read this book, uh, Chasing the Scream, and I'm halfway through it, and it's a hard read uh, for people who uh, have family members who are addicted. Um, but I will say that, to me, um, there have been studies in Europe that I've learned through this book where safe injection sites um, were successful and and curbing a lot of the dealers out on the street because apparently, and I don't, I'm just learning through this book that um, if someone is given pure heroin, they don't need as much as all the other stuff that a lot of these drug dealers are cutting it in with talcum powder and all this other garbage that, um, you know, that keeps them hooked. But um, it's an interesting. It's an interesting read for somebody who really wants to at least feel like you're you're in this mess. But I think what the mayor is trying to do is to try to find some answer, a answer, instead of the lip service. She's trying to put something out there. 
I'm going to pause here because I asked Jeffrey in the jailhouse interview what he thinks of Mayor London Breed's plan to open the country's first safe injection site. That's a facility where drug users would be allowed to shoot up inside under supervision. Did you know the city's considering opening safe injection sites where people could go inside and yeah. legally shoot up? Do you I see don't one? know why they've been waiting. Yeah. Would you have used one? Oh, yeah. You, uh, yeah. Like, you would have never found me ever. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen so many needles and, um, like, on the street and stuff like that. And I know they were uh, trying to employ like, even people that use drugs. Like, $19 an hour to go pick those things up, which is awesome. Because that gives them money. That gives them a job. Mm-hmm. Like, there's ways to do things. But all this, like, war on everything. Like, I would love to go into a safe injection site. So, like, there's kids that don't see this. I mean, usually, like, when they come and, you know... For the most part, everyone in the city, like when there's kids walking by and stuff like that, everyone tries to cover it. Like they don't want, like they don't want to be out there on the streets doing this stuff. You know, you know who's on the streets, like trying to arrest you, cops. I think the biggest thing when we're going back on um, this last um, case with Jeff, um, given a, a false name and uh, doing the, the uh, shoplifting, is the fact that um, for something where there was no harm whatsoever. And he was up on heroin uh, when he did this, and nothing was put on the books that we get back to the DA giving him a felony on this thing, and then he's he's got five years that he gets to sit and think about, mm-hmm. and with no and and the judge did order him to have all the rehab. And, and you know that's available and at the end of his prison term. No, it no, was no, during, 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 yes, okay, he is supposed to get all of that, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he has received nothing yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, San Mateo has a very different outlook. I interviewed the DA about Jeffrey's case, and he says that it was the right thing to do to sentence him to five years in state prison. And he said something to the effect of when you come to Civic Center in Redwood City, you don't see people lying on the ground with needles in our in their arms and our residents like it that way. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that statement? Well, uh, um, I can understand the policy in terms of what they're, they're trying to keep it clean and, and that type of thing. But um, I don't know. I just uh, it's just a. T- I want to know where they think that this is helpful because they are in a position that they're supposed to be protecting the the community, but these people, for the most part, aren't harming anybody but themselves. And they're in this vortex um, that the longer they're out there, the harder it is to reach them. And I think that's what's so unique about our situation right now is the fact that Jeff's just opened up and sharing lots of stories and, and experiences with us. Um, something happened where he opened up. But I think if you try to talk to anybody out there on the street, you're not going to get much out of them. You know, you're not going to get somebody who really wants the help because they've been put down time and time again. So one silver lining perhaps from... His arrest in September is that you have reconnected. You've been talking on the phone a lot, visiting a lot. You're going to San Quentin in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. How has that been to really reunite with Jeffrey? Oh, it's it's been terrific. It's it's it gives us hope. It gives we because we've for so many years we've struggled along the way just to get to the point where we're at now, and hopefully that he would come around and we'd have a have a relationship and an honest one, 
And that, that's the bottom line because for so many years it was like um, you don't know if he was telling the truth or not. He could look straight at you and you think he's telling the truth and it really wasn't. But we, the trust is building up now. The idea that he came back and wrote and apologized. We felt we were the last ones Really, we were the last ones that he apologized to for all his wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. I think one of his, um, I think they have a 10-step process at the Salvation Army, 10-step thing for uh, rehab. It's 12. 12, step, 10 or 12, yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. And one of the steps is is to go and confess and go back and apologize and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, he seemed like he did it for everybody else, but we were the last ones on the list. And he finally did. So he's, we think he's he's getting to where we, we, we like to be and where he, where he, he would want to be. When did you get that apology letter? I think it was February. It was yeah. after the trial um, that we were there every day uh, watching that, which was hard to watch. Yeah, yeah. And you have that letter with you? Yes. Can you read it on the podcast? Um, we received this uh, March 22nd. Mom and Dad, I hope everything is going well. I haven't been able to write because I ran out of stamps, and I just got a couple of them from someone so I could write to you. I've received the first two letters from you. The last one was about the two dates of March 26th and April 30th for my appeal. I don't really understand which each of these dates are for or how long and drawn out this appeal could be. I've been reading about two books every three days, a lot by Sidney Shelton, which are quick reads. However, very entertaining with so many things and surprises. Also, I read the book of the movie Beautiful Boy, which I read in one day, and I am passing it on to Nick, who I enclosed his letter in my last mail out. It was definitely eye-opening to read about the perspective of the family members. Because I would always have it in my head that nobody cared, that nobody wanted to hear from me, and that it was better not to be wanted than to call and be rejected. If that would have happened, I would have been angry with myself because I knew better. However, what was in my head was not reality. There are so many similarities between the thoughts of what you have gone through and what Mr. Steve has put forth in his book. So for what it's worth now, I apologize for being so closed-minded or emotionally turned off, which inevitably kept me in the closed-off state of mind, which had become closed-off and robotic for so long. Seeing this from another perspective and becoming more of an open-minded person, I can honestly tell you it was not my intention to be cold or shut off. My own negativity and depreciating self-worth had caused an emotional wall to be built and an unintended lapse of caring and judgment to supersede my natural character. I do want to let both of you know that I truly apologize for the effects this has had on our relationship. The consequences that arose as a result of this long-lasting hemorrhaging of negative thoughts were not intentional. Also, in hindsight, and give it another chance, I would look through your words to understand that they were made out of fear and that your intent is to help or save me, not to exile or harm me. I may not be perfect in doing so, but I will do my best and put forth the necessary efforts to trust, 
believe and have faith that whatever happens or is said, it is done out of love to help me not to hurt me. Hopefully you both can understand that I am saying I was wrong for not trusting you, not listening, and not giving you the benefit of the doubt that you want me to be well. I hope you understand that I will put forth the guided effort into a loving, understanding, and positive relationship that we can be proud of and happy in. Wow. It's hmm. a long ways from where he was six months ago, huh? Yes. Or even before, yeah, yeah, yes. for sure. It's kind of like I, I've heard, I heard the phrase, you say, that's, that's the drugs. Mm -hmm. it, it's, not the, it's not him, it's the drugs. Mm -hmm. And for so many years, it was the drugs. Yeah. But we feel like, you know, last few months, that was him. So he could face up to five years in prison if they don't let him out early, and he'll be 39 when he's released. What, what do you want to for Jeffrey after that? Where What are your hopes for your son? Well, I'm hoping he has the same attitude as, as he's got currently. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, things that, you know, frustrations for me is um, Jeff has... Ironically, uh, when Jeff was born, uh, his doctor, his first doctor, Dr. Fred Von Steef, um, is currently an addiction medicine, medicine specialist doctor. And uh, he wrote a letter to the judge um, stating that he will take care of Jeff in, in that, the, making sure he has the right medications for his depression, for the, the anxieties, uh, you know, uh, he works with John Muir Health um, as well. And, uh, you know, with that opportunity, with somebody who um, he's an author, he's, he's got his book, Balancing, Balancing the Brain. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, very good read. And he's so dedicated to this. And this offer, this gift, um, we can't take advantage of because Jeff's locked up. Mm -hmm. um, the probation department, that was another thing. It just seemed like if anything was going to go right this time, it went wrong. Mm -hmm. And the probation department who uh, sent me an email and talked to me about Jeff going to Delancey Street. And uh, when I shared with her that Delancey Street does not accept, and it's right on their website, co-disorder uh, people, because of the medication issues. And um, so when I read that to her, uh, she and Jeff was uh, accepted at the Olaf house, which is in the city as well. And two days later or three days later, I get a call from the attorney that the probation officer recommended prison mm -hmm. instead of this rehabilitation. So did I... Overspeak? Mm -hmm. Is it? Is this one of those situations that uh, less is more? Mm -hmm. I mean, is prison going to having prison time? Is that going to make things better for him? Is he when he gets out, he go right back to where he started again? Um, I remember uh, Jeff when he read Dr. Von Steve's book, and he's always wanted to, somebody to understand what he's going through, you know, and what it's like out there. And he says after he read the book, he was so excited. But he says. He, that's exactly what, I, what, what mm -hmm. I'm going through. That's exactly what I want everybody to know. So and imagine so, Jeff's 40th birthday. What are your hopes for him on that day? 
Gosh, well, I just I just want him to be free of this. Yeah, and just it, it's hard to it's hard to go five years down the road when was for so long we've been doing it a day at a time, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and so I mean, our next thing is okay. When can when can he get out? Or how long does it take before he can get out? In a sense, because there's you never know. Maybe hopefully they can mitigate the, the sentence a little bit, and maybe shorten mm-hmm. it, whatever. Our hope is to get him through this. Yeah, and that's that's the first thing, and then we get close to the point where he's coming out, then we'll we'll take that step from there, I think. Mm -hmm. Let's hear from Jeffrey again. I asked him where he'd like to be in five years, and this is what he said. In five years, like, I'd like to have a job and do that. I'd love to do some of my artwork. Like, uh, I tried to go to the Academy of Art, and they wouldn't even accept me to school. Like, the president told me school would probably ruin me, so I'll get some time to do that, but find something to do with that. Um, I got some stuff that's very unique, and that's what I, I love to do. I have no idea what, like, how to talk about it. I have no idea what... Like when they talk about stuff, like I do it, but I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. But it's um, it's something I kind of call it like a gift from God because mm-hmm. it was like that was the one thing that kept me like level headed and doing what I was doing last time. And uh, they actually um, they have these walls in San Quentin in the Chow Hall that are like bought by the Smithsonian. And that's what I was staring at for a couple months before I started drawing. So they actually compare my drawings to that. And uh, I just happened to get really good really quick. And I would love to be able to do something with that. Like you know, I mean that's I. I can't sit still, like, this is long as I've sat still in a while, and I can't sit still for five minutes usually. And I can sit there and draw with some music and coffee for 16 hours straight. Boom. Mm-hmm. I guess nothing. And enjoy all of it. So San Franciscans see people like Jeff when they're walking around the city every day. Um, last question is what you would want them to understand about this crisis and about the people they see passed out on the sidewalks. Well, everybody has a story everybody. and you don't know where they came from. You can assume where they came from. You can mm-hmm. assume they're lazy people that that never really had a career or anything. But the stories that Jeff is sharing from the streets, you find some very intelligent mm-hmm. people with careers that had careers uh, you know, um, it, 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 you just don't know where they came from. So don't don't think you do. Yeah. Some of them, you know, they don't mind being there. That's just the way it is. Some people don't have that choice. And that's where they end up. So a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different reasons. Um, and not only in San Francisco. I work I work the border. Uh, I go through the border of Emeryville and Oakland. And I, every day I go through that. And I think of Jeff and I think of I think of those people and see how did they get here? Do they really want to be here? What's it going to take for them to get out of there? Mm-hmm. And I guess that I, so I kind of go through that every day myself. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for sharing your story and for coming here today. Thank, thank Heather. you. Thank you. Heather. Jeffrey was transferred from a Redwood City jail to San Quentin for several weeks to wait for his ultimate placement. He just found out he'll be serving his five-year sentence at a state prison in Susanville. His parents are sad that the placement is so far away. It'll take them nearly five hours in the car each way to visit their son. Thank you to Susan Choate Bry and Steve Bry for joining me today. Thank you to Jeffrey Choate for sharing his story. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief, and Dominic Fercasa is this podcast's producer. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. 
Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.